I'm very grateful for your invitation, Nigel. Thank you. Um, I've been mulling this over for a few weeks, and I thought I would tell you about stories. Maybe you could call them narratives. Uh, and I want to tell you a story that um, happened in the little village of Dona Manor seven years ago or so. Um, we moved, my wife and I moved there from having worked in the diocese in Europe for 13 years. Uh, my wife's from Curran Money. So we came back to Northern Ireland. We were married here in 1979, so I'm very familiar with Northern Ireland, but I've never lived here until we moved to Donna Manor in 2014 when I was licensed as the rector of St. James's Parish there in the Diocese of Derry and Raffoe. And very soon after I arrived, I had a delegation of eight men who turned up at the rectory looking particularly scary um, as you can tell, I'm not from these parts. I'm English, uh, not familiar with all the traditions that go on. And I invited them in and I said, you know, what is it you'd like to see me about? And they said, well, we're from the Orange Order, from the Royal Black Preceptory, and from the Apprentice uh, Boys, and we would like to have a black service. And I said, I don't know what that is, so you'll have to tell me what that means. So they told me the stories of their different organizations. And then one man uh, told me about um, the apprentice boys and the story of the siege of Derry uh, and how they locked the gates in the, in the city of Derry and there was a blockade in the River Foyle. And then there was one man called Lundy who, was a, who betrayed the imprisoned um, population there and went out to the other side and he was known as a traitor. And the longer this man told me the story of Lundy, the more agitated he got, and the veins stood out in his neck, and he went bright red, and he was furious with Lundy. It was almost as if he said, if I ever find Lundy walking around the streets of Derry, I'm gonna get him. And Lundy had died 300 years ago. But the history, the story, the narrative was very real. It was powerful. It was as if that event was as fresh today as it was 300 years ago. And it struck me very forcibly how the narratives that we tell each other, and maybe we pass from generation to generation, inform how we think about ourselves, how we think about the other, how we think about our culture, how we think about the trajectory of our lives. All of us, in different ways, tell each other stories about who we are. Now, I've just met somebody at the back there, David it was, who was welcoming me. Thank you, David. I don't know where he is now, and he was telling me about where he used to work and where he used to live. And that's what we all do when we meet somebody. We tell each other a few stories. We select stories from our memory and we relate, to, tell those stories. And we, as me as a newcomer, we kind of piece them together and we have a little picture of who this person is. That's how stories work. And we're very selective in the stories we tell each other. And Northern Ireland is full absolutely full of contested stories, as we know. So I thought we'd think of stories in the Bible this morning. And that's why I chose those three readings. 
And in each case, the storyteller had to learn to retell their story in a different way. So let's take the story of Joseph. You, I'm sure, are all familiar with the story of Joseph and his brothers in the book of Genesis and how he started off having these dreams where he uh, was portrayed in the dreams as the, as the favored one in the family and all his brothers would bow down before him uh, and they got a bit annoyed with him and irritated with him and they eventually take their chance and they beat him up and leave him for dead and he's carried away to Egypt where he spends the rest of his life and he spends in Egypt he's imprisoned for a number of years and he's forgotten about for uh, years and years and years until suddenly Pharaoh has a dream and Joseph is asked to come and um, interpret the dream and he comes out of prison and then he ends up being second in command and uh, in charge of all the grain harvest and he's responsible for feeding an entire nation. But he's still estranged from his family who are back in Israel and uh, they come down to Egypt because they're hungry and they look for grain and they eventually meet Joseph and uh, there's this very intimate powerful story of their meeting their encounter after decades of separation now how does Joseph tell his story I shouldn't have put this Bible away let me get it back again. let me find Genesis What Joseph could have done is tell his own story as the innocent victim. I was the one that was beaten up. I was the one that was left for dead. I was the one that spent all those years in prison. Poor old me. He could have told his story like that. And in one sense, it is true. He was a victim. Or he could have told his story in a completely different way. Look at me. I'm number two in the whole of Egypt. I am the victor. I'm not the victim. I am the one who's the victor. That's who I am. And my dreams early on in life, they've proved to be true. Ha-ha. <laughs> that's who I am. And in a sense, that story could be true too. Neither story is necessarily completely false. But what Joseph does is to say this. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So what's happened in those years of estrangement and time um, languishing in prison is a time of reflection, a time of reframing, retelling his own story. And now he sees his story as marked by, peppered by the grace of God throughout. And he's able to greet his, his brothers without bitterness, without revenge, without resentment, with an embrace. The only reason he's able to do that is because he retells his, the narrative of his life by seeing the grace of God in different places, in different times. Isn't that a powerful thing, to retell our own stories in such a way that we see the gift of God at every turn? Let's go to Mary now, the Magnificat. 
The trouble with these readings is they're so familiar. Every Christmas we read the Magnificat, and it's nice and we sing it. But what's going on with that Magnificat? What's happening? Mary is a young teenage peasant girl from a humble background. In many ways, she's a nobody. She's insignificant, unknown. No one knows anything about her. Her life is utterly unremarkable. There's really nothing to tell about her story. And then she meets Gabriel and has the annunciation that she's going to bear Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. And she reflects on that. She goes to her cousin Elizabeth up in the mountains. And then, having thought about it and just been caught up in the wonder of that annunciation, she bursts into song and tells her own story in a completely different way. She could have said about who she is, well, I'm just a simple peasant girl, unremarkable, humble. All I do is cook and clean and do, look after the animals and harvest the grain or whatever she does. There's nothing special about me at all. Magnificat, she says, no, my story is part of the whole narrative of Israel. My story is the story of God noticing the humble and insignificant and lifting them up. My story is the story of God taking the proud and the wealthy and the rulers and bringing them down. I am caught up in the huge divine narrative of redemption. That's who I am, says Mary. And she is ennobled. She is honored. There's a dignity about her. It's almost she's empowered by this new narrative of being caught up in the purposes of God. It's remarkable. And I suspect many of us here would say, well, there's nothing interesting about me. I've just been to work and I've looked, bring, brought up my family and lived in Bangor or Belfast or wherever. And yeah, that's, that's just me. But actually, all of us are caught up in the grand narrative of God's redemption. All of us have this extraordinary dignity and worth and purpose because we're part of a much, much bigger narrative. The third story is a story of Paul, the apostle. So you know the story of Paul, I'm sure. He's a Pharisee, he's zealous, he's a law keeper. He witnesses the stoning of Stephen and approves it. He then moves on and goes on a journey to Damascus. And on Damascus, he meets the risen Christ and it changes everything. He then has a problem because he's devoted his entire life to the obedience to the Jewish tradition. And suddenly he meets Jesus and he has to rethink my entire life story. Was all of that a waste of time? Was all of that just ridiculous? Did I get the wrong track? Did, what, what, was, what was going on with my life? Why did I do all that? So he has to find a way 
of telling the story of his life as a Jew, but also now including in that story meeting the person of Jesus. And that's why he says in Philippians, and he's writing to the people in the church in Philippi, I used to be obsessed with law-keeping and rule-keeping. I mean, look at my pedigree, Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, zealous to keep the law. That's who I thought I was. Now I realize that's not true. For whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What he's doing in that Philippians passage is reframing his own narrative. And he's doing so because now he has met Christ and everything has to be retold in a different way, in a new way. So all three characters we've looked at, Joseph could have been a victim, could have been proud, but he's not. Mary could have said, I'm just a nobody, but she's not. Paul could have boasted about his heritage, but he doesn't. What has changed? What has changed? They've all encountered the grace of God, and that compels them to retell the story of who they are. So what? So what? What's that got to do with us? Well, as I said at the outset, we all inhabit narratives. It's what we do. We dwell, we indwell a story of who we are as individuals, who we are as Anglicans, who we are as Protestants, who we are as Northern Irish people. These are all narratives and we dwell within those narratives. A few weeks ago, I think, I think it was the beginning of July, Joan and I were walking along the seafront of Bangor, got to the clock and there was a big crowd of people um, waiting at the crossroads by the Redberry Cafe and I didn't know what was going on and I asked somebody, what's happening here? And they said, we're waiting for a, a band to come down. And I said, well, what, what are they marching about? And they said, what's well, about the Battle of the Somme, 1916. Right. So what they said was the Battle of the Somme is part of their identity, their story, and we want to celebrate it. Now, I'm not for one minute saying they shouldn't do that. Of course, they have absolutely their own traditions which they are unable to keep. But 1916 was, for that group of people, the defining, one of the defining dates in their story. But we all know that 1916 is another defining date for a different group of people in this country relating to the East Uprising in Dublin. So that one date elicits different stories and different identities and different traditions. The thing about stories is they can liberate us as they did with Mary and Joseph and Paul but stories can also trap us and keep us locked in and keep us afraid of the other, keep us afraid of change. They can have both effects, liberation or entrapment. The difference is when we're able to see 
where is the grace of God in my life? Where is the pattern of the grace of God breaking in to my story? A few weeks ago, I was invited to lead an online retreat for a group of Americans. Uh, and I asked them to try an exercise, right? I don't know how they got on. I said, it's an individual exercise. I'm not asking you to report back to me or anybody else. I want you to write three short paragraphs. The first paragraph is to write your own story, only mentioning the most difficult, the most disappointing times of your life. Just mention the difficulties. Tell me that's, write down your story. Just write that, that's all, nothing else. Second paragraph, write down your story, only mentioning your most admirable qualities, your creativity, your resilience, your patience, your care. Just mention those. And the third paragraph is write your story at all times asking where is the gift of God? Where is the gift of God? See it, find it, acknowledge it, record it, include it. Now I've been ordained for 24 years uh, and before that I was a school teacher for 17 years and um, then someone suggested to me that I, I consider ordination. And one of the tasks I was given was what's called a faith audit. I didn't really know what that was, but the man from the, 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 the diocese, from the, uh, the cathedral, said to me, a faith audit is where you write your entire life history, you divide it into, up into little chunks, five-year chunks or ten-year chunks, and in each period, you ask the question, where is God? So where is God from the age of naught to five for me? and from five to 10, and from 10 to 15, and so on. And I found this a really interesting exercise, because I wasn't brought up in a Christian home. I'd never been to church at all. And I came to faith at university when I was 18. But I was asked to trace the footsteps of God at every point in my life, and to see whether that pattern, that, that trail, as it were, pointed towards a vocation. And I wrote this and I kept on writing and I thought it's not going to take very long, maybe a page. And I ended up writing 10,000 words. I got carried away. But it was a really interesting exercise of how can you tell, how could I tell the story of my life in such a way that at every point I could detect the grace of God, even when I didn't know the person of Jesus. Was God still doing things in the background. So I want to leave you with that thought this morning, the thought that narratives are what we live by, narratives of what we inhabit, and narratives can be reframed and retold as long as we're able to see where the grace of God is at work in our lives. Thank you for listening.